A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness. This is from The Taxidermist by Shazia Qureshi. At the table, she waits for the mouse to thaw. Scalpel, tweezers, calipers, pins, pipe cleaners, wire, scissors, needle, thread, straw. Begins, taking apart, putting together. A white mouse, a feeder mouse. Soft drift of white, his modest truth disarms me. Forehead, ears, feet. Mouth a dim rose with teeth. I admire this raw meat of us, this ease. A white mouse too. What has a white mouse to show us? I meet him, white mute item. Fate, air hums with it. He was, he is. I sew him shut, wish him home. Her hands, intent, precise, thinking, miracle how living works, stops. Careful labor to preserve, restore, what? Limbo? No. Past in present, perhaps, an imprint, a three-dimensional holding of memory, no, of once being. She once heard someone say, this is craft, it lacks edge, advantage, power, urgency, force, gets up to shift thoughts. Shazia, where did this sequence of poems come from? Um, That's such a good question. And I often uh, have to unpick the answer uh, myself. Um, So uh, with all my writing, actually, um, more particularly lately, I find that at some point I'll notice I've been uh, drawn to something Uh, a subject or something that has like, it's got a sort of magnetic pull on my attention. Um, So for several years, quite a few years, actually, I'd been um, thinking a lot about uh, artistic process and the artistic impulse. Um, You know, also, I think as a, as a poet where, you know, famously, there's not, I know some people earn a good living, but there's not famously, it's, not a very easy way to make a living. 
Um, I would often... Who are these people? (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to name names, but some people do it very well. Introduce me. Yeah, and kudos, kudos to them. Um, But, you know, I don't know if you have this, Mark. Sometimes, you know, when you wake up at 4 a.m. and sometimes I would be thinking, is this, why am I doing this? Is this, it's, is it self-indulgent? Um... I'm not making enough to uh, support my family, to be able to uh, support, you know, to maybe my um, see my mom in Canada a bit more. Um, and so I just became really interested in looking at other artists and um, why they do what they do. So that's something that had been going on for many years anyway. Mm-hmm. And then I found myself drawn to uh, taxidermy. I came across, uh, there was a program on the BBC quite a long time ago. I think it was called What Do Artists Do All Day? And there was an interview with... Yeah, this, yeah, great program. Yeah, you remember that. Mm. Um, there's an interview with this artist, Polly Morgan, who's a taxidermy artist. And just something, uh, without knowing why, I just became, it just really, really grabbed my attention. And then I started doing more research and I discovered that there's been a kind of movement over the last decade or more um, for young female uh, taxidermy artists uh, and, and how their approach is quite different to the sort of traditional male dominated um, well, there's, you know, taxidermy, which is sort of scientific and museum Um, based and then there's also the kind of hunting fishing trophy sort of taxidermy yeah Mm. Uh, and this was a very different approach to it there seems to be a kind of um perhaps that's just how I saw it a kind of tenderness and a respect and a a kind of um uh holding up and exalting of of these small brief lives which I was really moved by. Yeah. Um, and then I think at some point, I don't know when I sort of, re- and I've always been a little bit, I've been thinking about death for a very long time. I think, <laughs> <laughs> I, well, as as I suppose we all do, but you, my father died quite suddenly when I was 20 and um, that kind of really uh, changed me and changed my world. And, and I suppose... I've been sort of thinking and and sort of trying to kind of make sense of how we live um, live with um, our dev, dead beloveds, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then I don't know if it's before or after this taxidermy thing, but my younger brother Asad was um, diagnosed with a terminal illness, and then he he died. I think it was just over two years ago, and so that I think was that kind of grief was probably, um, I I think it's very much in this book, but I I knew I didn't want to write about grief because um, I find when I'm in grief, it's completely stultifying. And also, um, I I mean, I think I did try to write about grief in it and it was just, it was just uh, didn't, didn't offer anything that to me or to, to a reader. Um, and so I think I just really was looking for um, how to kind of bring in the kind of joy of being alive and how to partner that with this kind of uh, loss as well. And, and so I think 
that for me, that the taxidermist just came, you know, it sort of offered itself as, as a way for me to write about something that was very personal, mm-hmm. but to write about it in a way that I could offer something, um, well, that I'd, that I'd like from it as well as something that I could hopefully offer to the reader. Well, you've certainly done that. I mean, it's a short book. Well, obviously, it's a pamphlet, so it's short by design. But there's an awful lot in it. And I sense that, I mean, I didn't know the background until I asked you just now, but there's a lot of close-up in the poem, a lot of looking at creatures in, in really minute detail, as a taxidermist obviously would. So there's a lot of close-up foreground going on, but you get a real sense of a, a hinterland, a background. And clearly that's there for you as the writer, but maybe it's also there for the taxidermist in the poem, because we see a lot of her close-up of what she is focused on in the moment, in the foreground, but I also get a sense that there's a lot going on in her life, just out of shot, so to speak. Yeah, I I really love that you see it in that way. So I I suppose, um, I mean, I'll I'll talk, uh, I won't talk about form at the moment, but I it was lots of things sort of fortuitously fed into this. I did a, a I was lucky enough to do uh, get a place on a writer's residency in Mexico in Oaxaca, and um, so that was early last year, kind of from mid January until March, so <laughs> just before the pandemic. Um, and I really saw that as being the setting for this book and for and for the wider collection that I'd been working on for a while. So the the taxidermist pamphlet is, I think of it as an aria. It's very much just um, a very internal experience of the taxidermist. And it's very sort of closed. um, and, And I just really wanted it to be as if we are experiencing what she's experiencing and, and thinking what she's thinking, you know, and, and I, I wrote, the bulk of it in the first lockdown because the um, oh, really? I I think I, yeah I, well because my uh, manuscript was due I think in June or or um, something like that and so I I was literally in my little writing shed in the garden we have a very small garden uh, which just fits the writing shed and a little bit more um, and of course it was lockdown so. My daughter um, was home and my son was home and we were all in the house. So I would go in right in the shed and it's very small. It's like four by six feet. Uh, And so I was very much, I was very much feeling, um, I feel like that probably really informed as well the, the feeling, although it's set in in Mexico, in this place that I went to, just outside Oaxaca, um, but she's just in she's just inside pretty well the whole time <laughs> of the book. Yeah, and maybe also to help the listener who hasn't read the whole sequence yet, one of the things I notice is the shift from the third person to the first person, and we get some views of the taxidermist's life and her interaction with the townsfolk in this place where she goes to in Mexico. But then you shift into the first person, which is like a a moment where we, you know, the camera angle shifts to focus on her view of this, the desk and the poor little white mouse that she's working on. 
And we can hear that in this excerpt that you've just read. You know, you start off with the third person and then you go into the first person. And, you know, it really does give that sense that we're in a very close proximity with the taxidermist and obviously with the mouse. Oh, that's great. You know, I hadn't actually noticed that. <laughs> noticed that. <laughs> I, I suppose it was just... Um, I mean, so much of my writing is through discovery so and inquiry uh, into something. And often I don't know what I'm going to say or, or what I'm doing until I can look back on it. You know, it's very much about being in, yeah. just being mm. in in it. Um, but now that you say it, I can see that it is very much, there's that kind of wide angle looking at her and then it's her um, and actually, I don't know if you can tell from my taxidermy opponents, but I did taxidermy uh, a white mouse wow. just um, because I thought I have to know. And actually, the white mouse only costs 43 pounds, uh, whereas I'd love to have done a bird, but it's a lot more expensive. <laughs> and I don't think actually I was up to that. Um, so. Yeah, so I, I just really, I mean, accuracy is so important to me as well. Accuracy, obviously, of of language and right, accuracy right, of um, yeah. emotion and thought, but also very much I, I wanted to make sure that, um, you know, I'm the taxidermy poems are emulating um, the act of, of taxidermy as well as reflecting on, on it. And so I wanted to know what it was like. And I have to say, I thought it would be this lovely, um, you know, there's just this lovely paying homage to uh, this lovely mm -hmm. animal. Um, and it is um, meat and <laughs> and kind of Ooh. gristle. And uh, when I was doing it accidentally, the, I pulled the foot off. But, you know, she, the teacher said, oh, don't worry, we, we, we can reattach that really easily. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think I've got off traffic. So this is method poetry. <laughs> You're the Daniel Day-Lewis of, <laughs> of contemporary poetry. I, gosh, I didn't realise you'd gone that far. Ah. <laughs> but absolutely the accuracy. I mean, the two words I wrote down when I was thinking about this conversation were delicacy and precision. I mean, I love the way you start off. At the table, she waits for the mouse to thaw. Scalpel, tweezers, calipers. Pins, pipe cleaner, wires, scissors. It's like when you lay those words out on the page, it's like that's how she's laying the tools out on the desk. And I also got a strong sense of that crossover between the artist and the taxidermist. Well, I mean, I didn't get it first time round but after a few readings this, the penny started to drop but I had no idea that you had gone the whole hog so to speak to make this as accurate as possible. I also watched um, because I have one in about um, these uh, really big snakes Olmican pit vipers so I watched uh, taxidermy there's loads on YouTube uh, usually from the States <laughs> um, watched kind of taxidermying snakes and there was something I watched I can't remember what it was but it was I found that like really quite grisly but um, yeah I did I did try to um, be as accurate uh, as I can you know and meet you know I wouldn't have known if I hadn't done it I wouldn't have known just um, how obviously flesh mm. 
you know, it is. And, and removing the skin from something is, is a really kind of big thing, actually. Yeah. And maybe, you know, for the benefit of the listener who may be, like me, feeling a little queasy at this point, um, your taxidermist does say somewhere in the poem that she only works with animals that have died of natural causes. It's, she's not a small game hunter, is she? No, um, that's something also I found from watching um, kind of interviews and videos with these um, female taxidermists. So it's called ethical taxidermy. And a lot of times um, once a taxidermist is well known or a taxidermy artist, um, some some people like Polly Morgan is very much more towards the art. And actually also another taxidermist, Divya Anantharaman, if you're interested in, in taxidermy art, um, she has a, she kind of is part of Gotham, I think it's called Gotham Taxidermy is her Instagram feed, which is just really um, so interesting. Um, but yes, yeah, so ethical taxidermy, it's only animals who've died a natural or unpreventable death. So for example, mm-hmm. the mouse I used is a feeder mouse. Their bread is food for snakes and lizards and reptiles and you buy them frozen from <laughs> pet stores. And so you do. When I came to the taxidermy class, she said, well, hopefully your mouse will be thawed <laughs> by now. Um so, you know, I, I think I wouldn't have known that if if I hadn't actually done it myself. Well, I'll make sure we link in the show notes on the website to those Instagram feeds and taxidermy artists. Oh, brilliant. Just so that people can check it out for themselves if they're feeling brave. And there is, you know, picking up on what you said earlier on about not being in the masculine tradition of taxidermy you know, the hunting and museums and conquests and look what we brought back from Borneo kind of thing in Victorian museums. I really got an unexpected sense of care and love. You know, in that third part where the taxidermist says, I sew him shut, wish him home. It's so sweet. (laughs) And at the same time, it's also quite macabre, you know. But I do get a sense that there is a, a lot of genuine love and compassion going into this art, even even though it's not going to do the mouse much good. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you see that. I, I just think these, you know, sometimes animals have had such brief lives, like butterflies only live a couple of weeks, you know, depending on their size. Um, I just find that gives me such, it's a really useful perspective to have in terms of our lives and our place on the earth. Um, So, yeah, I do feel a a great tenderness. And I look at, you know, I try and research the animals that that I taxidermy. I mean, I look them up, I say, I think, how big is it? Would it have lived in Mexico? And then I I see, I watch videos of of what they look like alive just to know how how they behave. Um, And yes, and I do feel a great tenderness towards them, as I think the taxidermist um, does as well. And, you know, the, the women that I've been, um, that I've been interested in and who I've learned a lot from, uh, they're all the same as well. I think there is a real, that's kind of very important actually. And when you talk in the poem about preserving these very brief fleeting lives, it reminded me of Philip Larkin when he said once that he didn't write poetry to communicate, but he wrote it to preserve. 
an experience. Yeah, I really agree with that. I didn't know that Larkin quote. Um, Absolutely. And I mean, I have a very, I've had for a very long time, a bad memory. So I do find it, um, I don't know if I started writing to preserve um, thoughts and feelings, but also I found that writing for me is so much about discovery. And for me, it's very much about making sense of things and of my place in the world and, and, you know, our place, I suppose, in the world. Um, but in a way that is, is not just about me, but hopefully I would want to be kind of generous to the reader so that there's also a place for the reader to, you know, leaving space between the words and in meaning for the reader to bring their own meaning at at some point uh, as well. So I don't want to lay it all out immediately. So there, there are lots of gaps and spaces, which I hope the reader will, as, as you said, you know, will bring to, will bring their own experience and their thinking to their, uh, what they make of, of the work. Absolutely. And I'm looking at the text here laid out, and this is something I've admired about your work for years, Shazia, the way you can lay words out on a page and the white space and the gaps and so on, you know, it's something you can't teach. You've either got it or you haven't. So I'd really encourage listeners to check out the text. It's on the website and it's also obviously printed in the pamphlet, The Taxidermist. How do you see the relationship? Because on one level, I think of you as a very visual poet, the way you lay the text out on the page. But also, as we've heard, it can also be beautifully read. So how do you see that relationship between the two versions of the poem? Um, That's such an interesting question. Um, I think, well, for the page particularly, uh, well, I think for both, but particularly the more narrative um, poems, which I really wanted to... Um, recreate the experience of her um, thinking, even though it's it's from a more wide angle and it's not from the eye point of view. Um, but I I wanted it to be kind of thinking as she's thinking, and then she corrects herself. So with the kind of um, striking out of words, you know, when we're thinking, we think, is it this? No, no, it's more like this. And so I wanted to include all those kind of corrections and approaching of of thoughts um, on the page. And so, and so I really wanted to score it in terms of, you know, using white space because I didn't want to use punctuation because it's her, it's, although it's in the third person, it's kind of very much an internal um, kind of thought process. Uh, a lot of the times. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to, instead of punctuation, I wanted to score it so that the reader still has a sense so that it helps the reader in how to read, read the poem, both in terms of pace, but also, also in terms of meaning. So really using kind of line breaks to um, deflect or emphasize things to have more than one meaning for things. Um, So Mm -hmm. you're just using as much, because it is quite narrative, but I wanted to bring all the tools of poetry that I that I could bring into it, like you know, like um, sound and um, metaphor, and kind of more having more than multiple meanings and things like that. Yeah, and I love that word "score" that you use. It's like you've written a like a score for a piece of music. 
And I feel like if I'm looking at this and I'm reading it out loud myself, you've indicated to me how to do it, where to put the pauses and the hesitations and the emphases and so on. And this is something I really encourage you to do, dear listener, is to get the text and, and read it out loud for yourself. Because I've said several times on the show, it's a very different experience when you're reading it and you're feeling it in your own mouth, your own body, instead of just being on the outside looking in at the text. So try out Shazia's score because she's laid it out for you in such a way that it's not hard to know how to, how to pace the reading. <laughs> Okay, focusing a little more on the specific form that you've used in the pamphlet. I, I had to do a double take when I got to the end of the pamphlet because you have this very intriguing little footnote where you talk about the specific form you used in the first-person taxidermy poems. So maybe you could say something about that because it made me look at the whole sequence in a completely different way. Oh, that's so great. And I loved that it was, I mean, I just really like putting it as a note at the end so that people could then go back and look. So the taxidermy poems are in um, in an anagram form, which uh, is a form that's used by Ulipo, which is a post-surrealist French group of writers, mathematicians, and scientists. Um, uh, I have... Uh, so it was founded in 1960, I think, this group, and uh, their members have included novelists like Georges Perec and Italo Calvino. So their whole thinking is that potential literature is um, is kind of new structures and patterns that come out of using constraints. So for them, it's all about constraints and how constraints are used as a means of triggering ideas and inspiration. Uh, so I think it was... Perec, who used, who wrote a whole novel in French, I think it was him, without the letter E. If you, I mean, if you know French, you know that would be, you would think that's impossible. Um, yeah, not, not easy, certainly. <laughs> not easy, no. Um, and so these, in so with the anagram form, I used, um, so the title, which is the animal. So instead of saying, if I just said white mouse, for example, I, I would not have had an A, <laughs> which would limit what I could mm -hmm. write. So so the first, actually the first one I did was a white mouse, a feeder mouse. And I started off doing these anagram poems, just um, figuring out the anagrams on my own. And I'm not very good at puzzles. So I would just brainstorm all the words I could come up with. And then... Um, I was teaching, it's interesting, at the poetry school. Um, I had written a few of these mouse poems, and I think I'd even uh, published some in uh, the Hudson Review, um, this really amazing American journal. Uh, and then mm -hmm. I, I did it in, I took it to my class, to my students, and they were coming away with like these incredible poems with all these words. And, you know, and I think there was this one student, Sean, and I said, okay, your poem is really good, but also, my God, you've come up with all these words. And all the students looked at me, they said, yeah, we used an online word generator. <laughs> no, you don't have to kind of do it yourself. It's no, like no. you feed it in. So, so after that, I started using the online word generator, which is kind of a double-edged sword because you end up with, um, so for example, I'm just working on a taxidermy poem now for um I just did a nine banded armadillo and I think there were almost two thousand possible words. 
that you then have to, it's really interesting because it sort of turns the editing process on the head. So you do all the editing or the way I do it anyway with the online work is I go through and I pick out all the kind of possible words that I might use in my poem. And then I, I write a long list of them. So I might end up with 400 or 300 and then from them from that's kind of my palette which becomes my word palette but also my sound palette with the anagram form I don't know if you noticed but because the letters are so limited there's a real kind of soundscape as well to the poems well I kind of had the sense that there was something going on you know it it was quite an odd effect it was maybe similar to the experience of reading I don't know, Marianne Moore syllabics. It's like even if you get the sense, even if you don't know and you haven't counted, that there's something going on here and I can't quite put my finger on what it is, but it's having a really interesting, slightly odd effect, which I really liked about it. So it was it was really delightful to then get the, the key to the mystery in the note at the end of the book. And I really think this is a, a great example of what, people often say about form is that the constraints push you to consider possibilities you wouldn't have considered otherwise and you end up with I mean you know the cliche about form is it's supposed to be a restriction but really what you're showing here is that it opens up new possibilities and it becomes more surprising than what you might have got without the constraints. Yes absolutely I mean just having these specific words to work from, I just, I found it so freeing. I mean, very, um, you know, sometimes I do get a headache after looking, sifting through 2,208 words <laughs> to find yes. words that I want to use. And, and then you kind of sift through more and more. So that is quite intense. But then you end up with words that, uh, you know, that I wouldn't have come to myself. So it does really surprise. It surprises me. And I feel like it takes, just opens the poem up to all these possibilities, which is what I love, you know, surprise for the, for me as a writer and surprise for the reader. For me, this is kind of the thing I love most in poetry. Well, it was certainly a surprising experience to read and then reread the sequence, and also to hear some of it today. So thank you, Shazia. And I think this is a a really nice point at which to hear the poems again. This is from The Taxidermist by Shazia Qureshi. At the table, she waits for the mouse to thaw. Scalpel, tweezers, calipers, pins, pipe cleaners, wire, scissors, needle, thread, straw. Begins, taking apart, putting together. A white mouse, a feeder mouse. Soft drift of white, his modest truth disarms me. Forehead, ears, feet. Mouth a dim rose with teeth. I admire this raw meat of us, this ease. 
A white mouse too. What has a white mouse to show us? I meet him, white mute item. Fate, air hums with it. He was, he is. I sew him shut, wish him home. Her hands, intent, precise, thinking, miracle how living works, stops. Careful labor to preserve, restore, what? Limbo? No. Past and present, perhaps, an imprint, a three-dimensional holding of memory, no, of once being. She once heard someone say, this is craft, it lacks edge, advantage, power, urgency, force, gets up to shift thoughts. This episode featured excerpts from The Taxidermist by Shazia Qureshi, published by Verve Poetry Press. Shazia Qureshi is a Pakistani-born Canadian poet and translator based in London. She teaches with the Poetry School and is an artist in residence with Living Words. Shazia's poems have appeared in UK and US publications, including The Guardian, The Financial Times, Modern Poetry in Translation, Poetry Review, The Hudson Review, and New England Review. Her books include The Art of Scratching, published by Bloodaxe Books, The Courtesan's Reply, published by Flipped Eye Publishing, which she is adapting for stage, and most recently, The Taxidermist, a chapbook from Verve Poetry Press. Her next collection is forthcoming from Bloodaxe Books in 2021. A Mouthful of Air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to help me reach more poetry lovers, you can do this by telling a friend about it or by taking a few seconds to leave a rating or even a brief review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like a full transcript of every episode sent to you via email, including the poem text, you can sign up for this at a mouthfulofair.fm slash subscribe. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, you can find all the links as well as a full episode archive at a mouthfulofair.fm. The music and soundscapes for the show are created by Javier Whaler. Sound production is by Breaking Waves and visual identity by Irene Hoffman. A Mouthful of Air is produced by the 21st Century Creative, with support from Arts Council England via a National Lottery Project grant. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem.